0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Today we're talking about everybody's favorite subject, death. I don't know why this, well, I know why, but I'm. it's odd if you think about it, why this subject Freaks everybody out because it's coming for all of us and everybody we know. And yet, and I don't put. I, uh, this is true for me too. It's very difficult to think about death, especially your own. It's a little bit like trying to get a cat to look in the mirror or hold hold two magnets together. It's just like there's a lot of resistance. People don't want to think about it, um, and we sort of quarantine our older people into nursing homes, and we paint people up when they're in open caskets and we just don't want to think about this fundamental reality. And one of the things that I love about Buddhism and as an aside here, when I talk about Buddhism, I don't think of it as something to believe in but rather something to do. So what I like about the practice of Buddhism, not the faith of it, is that it forces you uh, just like after you know your dog poops on the rug, it forces you to look at this reality uh, in a in a rigorous, repetitive way um, it forces you to look at the hard fact of impermanence and to consider that it applies to you um, and my two guests today have radically reoriented their entire lives to confront this fact and they are and they have long titles here but don't be fooled they're, uh they're pretty <laughs> down-to-earth notwithstanding these long titles uh, sensei Robert Chodo Campbell and sensei Koshin Paley Ellison uh, they are from the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care Gentlemen, thanks for being on.
1: Nice to see you. It's good to
0: see you. Okay, so so let's just—I have a million questions. For you. Just just but so their whole they're, these guys—they're they're Zen priests, notwithstanding the fact that they wear uh, black robes. Uh, they are anything but funereal, and uh, and and that's despite the fact that their their whole job right now is to uh, do hospice care. So I have a million questions for both of you, but I'm going to start with you, uh, Koshin. Because I want to talk about your your respective backstories, how you got to where you are now. Okay. You were born under with what name? Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. Daniel Paley Ellison. Yes. And so now it's sensei Koshin <laughs> Paley Ellison. How did we get from Daniel to a four <laughs> name title? And you've got a bunch of like little like acronyms after your name too, because you've got a, some so some some, degrees. Yeah, yeah, some degrees. Yeah. How okay. do, how did we get there? Well, um, that's a good question. That's what people always say when they don't want to answer the question. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the ways that we got here is that my... Keep it in the eye. I'm talking about you. Oh, all right, then. I should say these two are, are, are not only – not only do they run the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care together. We but do they, stand-up they, comedy. They, they do stand-up comedy. They live together, and you've been together for how long uh, as, years. as romantic partners? So so you're going to – that will come through. So anyway, yes, keep it in the eye. Even though we're Buddhists here, keep it in the eye.
1: Well, I think of my – great-grandfather was a rabbi and had come over here from escaping pogroms, and he was so dedicated to service. And he was the kind of the only, as far as I know, religious or spiritual-based person in our family. And he was so dedicated to housing people coming over from Russia and from Poland and during the war. And... I think that in some ways I always had such an affinity to him. And his son, um, my grandfather, was also totally dedicated to service. And uh, his life was about service and care for other people. And he was my inspiration as a young person. And the story goes that my mom said that when I was eight, she said, so when you want to grow up what to be when you're an adult? And I said, a Zen Buddhist monk. Really? Yeah. Even before my bar mitzvah.
0: Wow. Yeah. Where did you even get that idea
1: from? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, my grandfather, the same grandfather, had shown me. He used to save all the National Geographics for me and look through them with me and say, you know, like, you could explore all of these places. And one of them was one about Tokyo. You know, every once in a while they'd have, like, the lost native tribe of so, some place and then they'd have some city and Tokyo and they had this picture where everyone was blurred and they were in suits and kind of out of focus and in movement and in the middle of the photo there was this guy with a hat and with a little smile and you couldn't see his eyes and he was wearing robes and I said, wow, he was so still and it said below, Zen Buddhist monk in Tokyo and I said, wow, I'd like to be like that
0: Well, we were very different 8-year-olds because I was into, like, destroying things, (laughs) bullying people, and trying to kill the squirrels in my backyard. That would not have appealed to me. Yeah, I was a terrible person. I remain a terrible person. (laughs) But that's why I'm attracted to you guys, because you could teach me something. Anyway, so eight eight years old, you were attracted to Zen Buddhism.
1: There was an early propensity, you could say. But
0: you were a nice Jewish boy growing up here in the New York City area, if I recall correctly? Upstate New York. Upstate New York, okay. And you went off to college and all that, and and, and was your goal as a young man still to be a, a Zen Buddhist, or had you moved on to something a little bit more worldly?
1: Well, I've played with the idea of being a psychologist, and then, but I met my first Zen teacher, um, John Dido-Lurie, when I was seventeen, and I'd gone out to Naropa University. At that time, it was Naropa Institute to meet and study with Allen Ginsberg. Oh, so this is this is Naropa in Boulder, yeah. Uh, Colorado. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I went out there to study with Allen, that I saw. Dido walking down the street and he was just like some guy in these robes and so approachable and so warm and he, I just I felt like I'd seen, it was like a deja vu of that picture when I was eight years old and I just thought like, but it was like an American guy, something like Italian-American guy and he was the first one who really taught me how to sit and who was so kind and so generous and to sit, meaning
0: to meditate, yeah, 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 and you right. took to the practice right away yeah. as a young guy,, yeah. and so, how did you get to the point where you ordained as a priest and started a hospice care uh... <laughs> um, well, that was really
1: through my care of my grandmother, and I you know, as I got more and more into my practice, it just became so clear in what I mean the meditation practice. That was the most central thing in my life. So ordaining and mo- maintaining the forms seemed like an obvious maintaining the forms. Yeah, like learning how to like teach people meditation and how to hold a memorial service, how to you know how to take care of people through this Zen form, right? And so that felt really central to me, and so that became just kind of an obvious thing, and I felt like that. I burned through, like, my first 10 years of practice, I hated meditating. You know, it was really difficult for me. Like, every time, I couldn't wait for them to ring the bell. Like, they would ring the bell at the beginning, and I would sit there and say, please ring the bell, please (laughs) ring the bell, please (laughs) ring the bell. I've had that experience many times. And then, but I realized I just kept going back to it. And I think that there was just something about seeing... I saw something that I didn't even know what I was seeing, but there was something that was so powerful about sitting and meditating that I felt that I kept coming back, even though it seemed like every time I hated it. And then suddenly at one retreat, it kind of dropped away, and the resistance to it. And I saw how much I had been kind of not liking my situations, one after the other. And I saw through, like, all those years of meditating and not liking meditating about how I've done that like in so many areas of my life, and I had it stopped and it was stopping me from actually fully participating in a way that felt free and so I like suddenly had this like tiny experience there wow, that's what all these teachings are talking about and uh how how we get in our own way basically. Absolutely. And uh, it was during that whole time that I was, my grandmother was, who was from Brooklyn, and Mimi, and she, you know, got to a certain point in her life where her kids, you know, who loved her so much, my dad and her, his sister wanted her to move to an assisted living by them. And she didn't want to do that. And she, we made a pact together to take care of each other. And so I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and so I would, you know, do shopping with her and taking care of her and, um, you know, and eventually doing doctor's visits and ambulance rides and hospitalizations, then moving in with her into the hospice unit. And she always had a lot of difficulty with my, the Zen thing, as she called it, and you know, as kind of a family coming from a family of Holocaust survivors. it was really difficult for her, just culturally. Um, it felt like a betrayal. and um, a betrayal. Yeah yeah, for her. Mm. And, but it was amazing, but the people who ended up starting to show up around her as she needed more and more care were people who, from our Zen center. And nobody was talking to her about Zen or meditating with her, but they were just, you know, giving her manicures and pedicures and singing with her or sitting and just, you know, chatting about whatever. And she was extremely interested in using that time to reflect and engage. And, you know, one of the most important moments of my life was one night when she woke me up in the hospice and was apologizing. She was, her tears streaming down her face. And she said that, um, that I'm so sorry that I didn't love you fully. And I didn't love you fully because there was a part of you, that whole well, Zen thing really scared me. Mm. And, but now I see it's so important to you and actually, all of your friends and Chodo are actually, it's what helps you be with me in a way that nobody else can be with me. Everyone else is so scared. And I'm so sorry. And I realize that now, she's like, I can't believe it took me 87 years to really understand what it means to love someone. and Which means to love all of them, not just the parts you want or like. And then, you know, it was amazing. You know, the next day, she actually said, You know, you and Jodo should start an organization. She's like, You know, train people how to care for people and combining it with that Zen thing. She's like, I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> and teaching them how to meditate. She's like, Those three things, you know, you should start an organization. And so, is what's so incredible is that it was such a great idea. <laughs> and so, the real founder, in a way, of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is Mimi Ellison, this little Hungarian Jewish lady. So, it was, it was her idea. It's great. It's so, so great. <laughs> and now for
0: something completely different. We're going to talk about Shodo's life experience, which is. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm just going to throw this word out, kind of wild. (laughs) Kind of wild. So uh, so your birth name was Robert Campbell? Robert Brian Campbell. Robert Brian Campbell. Okay. So how did you become Sensei Robert Chodo Campbell?
2: (laughs) (laughs) While you were talking to uh, Koshin, or while Koshin was talking – Being an eight-year-old, looking at this picture of National Geographic, my mind went to me being an eight-year-old, taking care of my 25-year-old mother, who was a single parent and um, an alcoholic. And so taking care of her would be bathing her black eyes or making sure there was food on the table. When the uh, whichever stepfather we happened to be living with at that time for so a few months, and this is where, in Birmingham, England, mm-hmm. and um, it was a <laughs> it was a series of geographics. You know, we would be living with someone for three or four months, and then the the usual fights would ensue, and then we'd be off to other far distant places like Manchester or Halifax or Scotland until either mom got fed up of the boyfriend or the boyfriend got fed up of mom and this kid in tow, yeah. you know, this, like, 8-year-old kid. So I was passed out between mom and her sister and her great aunt. You know, my mom, who was on many levels, actually an incredible caregiver in her later in her later years. She worked uh, for a number of years with uh, at a... In those days, they were called mental institutions with Down syndrome adults, and then she took care of seniors. Um, so it was in the genes, but uh, and, she loved and it. so was alcoholism. You know, she, uh, we were both cursed with the with the Irish curse. Um, and mom would disappear. She would uh, take me to her sister's house, uh, my aunt, and say. Um, all right, Dorian. I'm off to work. I'll see you tonight, and then maybe six weeks later she'd she'd come back. And so my aunt had ten kids, and so it was growing up in that environment. There were two really uh, polar opposite environments. There was the one that was filled with uncertainty of my mother was she ever going was she ever going to come back, or when was she going to come back, and what condition would she be in? And then there was the uh, environment. Growing up with my aunt, who had eventually ten kids, that she and she stayed home. She was knitting, she was making clothes, she was cooking. Her husband didn't drink. Um, he was fairly abusive in other ways, but you know he didn't drink, and there was always someone home, and there was always food on the table, and I wasn't cooking it. Um, <laughs> so, and then when I was uh, twelve, my mom had another kid, another my younger brother. And I remember the day she came home from the hospital, and um, my younger the baby was crying, and she said, "I you know I can't shut him up. I don't know what's wrong with him." And I said, "Well, you have to change his nappy, his diaper," and she said, "I don't know how to do that." Whoa, what had she done with you when you were a baby? She hadn't. There was always an aunt or her sister, or she was kind of like. Eh. Uh-huh. Handing, it, handing it yeah out. um so i cho- I showed her how to change the diaper and I showed her how to make the formula that in the hospital she had you know they made the formula for her, and so um when she came home with the you know the in the hospital in those days when you came home with a the baby, they gave you a a packet of diapers and a tin of formula and little instructions, and so I had to go through all that with my mom and show her how to dip your elbow in the water, make sure the bath water's not too hot, show her how to bathe, my little brother. And um, that put me immediately into the the new position of not only a caretaker for her, but babysitter, living babysitter. So um, that was pretty intense. And then two years later, she had another baby. And... Um She was good at having babies, but she wasn't very good at keeping men or getting married. Or apparently maybe taking care of the babies, yes, yeah. Um, You know, as she got older, I guess by the time she was 30, 32, she was was becoming a little more responsible, basically, because my uh, aunts uh, said, you've got to take some responsibility in your life. So uh, she eventually settled down with one man. And, um, it wasn't easy, you know, because now she had me and the the one man that she settled down with was the father of my two brothers. I see. And I was the interloper. So it was a very difficult uh, transition from a 13-year-old to a 16-year-old before, after one of many fights with him, uh, it was a really violent encounter one evening, and, um, One of us would have ended up dead. And uh, I put down the weapon and walked away and never went back. What weapon? It was a broken bottle from the doorstep. So you ran away from home? Yeah.
0: At 16? Yeah. And you mentioned the alcoholism. Was there alcohol involved in that fight and in your life generally at age 16?
2: Sure. Uh, My mother, of course, you know, she had a predilection for stocky, boxer-type men that were uh, heavy drinkers. And uh, he certainly was one of those. And she was, too. But yeah. she could hold her own in a fight.
0: You're a stocky, boxer-type <laughs> dude yourself. Yeah, I got
2: I got into a lot of fights <laughs> yeah. as a youngster. Um, so and as I wouldn't want to fight you now, no. just for the record. <laughs> So, yeah, I left home at 16 and embarked on a career of um, disco dancing, drugs, amphetamines, cocaine, and alcohol, working in bars, and um, just a series of geographics. As I mentioned earlier, I ended up in Spain as a DJ. I ended up living in Amsterdam for a year, Uh, Israel for a year. Israel? Yeah. I hitchhiked from... From London to Greece, from Greece to Turkey, from Turkey to Amsterdam, and it was all about you know. Of course, in hindsight, I realized it was all about just running, 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 running. And I remember the reason I thought I would go to Israel and live on the kibbutz. I'd heard about I'd heard about this kibbutz. Um, I thought, well, if I go to, I was twenty three, and I'd already started having bleeding a bleeding stomach, throwing up each morning, and um, from what. I went to my my doctor and he said, um, you know, you are in really serious health condition. You have a really serious health condition. You're drinking too much, which is causing this bleeding. You have a bleeding ulcer, basically. And um, you need to quit. And I was 23. And so I thought, you know, me being the smart person that I am, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go and live on a kibbutz where there's no alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) So I... um, Got on a plane, ended up in Tel Aviv. From Tel- when I got to Tel Aviv, they said, where would you like to go? I said, I'd, I'd like to be as far away from basically any cities as I can get. And they said, we have just the place for you. And it was a little kibbutz all the way down south in Elat, which is about five miles out of Elat. And at that time, there was one hotel or two hotels on this kibbutz. And, um, of course, oh, there were two hotels and one bar in Elat. So after being on the kibbutz for about six months and um, making a little trip into Elat every day to Henry's Bar. Oh, so you just kept drinking? Kept drinking. yeah. And then, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I kept drinking. And um, then I left the kibbutz and started working in a hotel uh, in Elat uh, as a chambermaid. That was all. Like the only job I could get was cleaning rooms, and uh, getting into trouble in cleaning rooms, stealing booze, and yeah. How
0: did you, how, how did you go from this ex- extremely <laughs> reckless lifestyle to 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 where you are now?
2: Mm. I came back to England after spending uh, a year in Israel, and. Um, at some point during my uh, teens, when I was well, I mean, it wasn't at some point when I was nineteen. I got engaged to uh, a lady, who uh, with whom we had a, a relationship that was very much like the relationship between my mother and her boyfriends. It was a lot of drinking. It was like the it was like at the comic wheel, you know. It was just. This is how I was brought up. This is what relationships look like. This is how I should be in relationship. So it was a lot of drinking, a lot of really good times, and a lot of really bad times. Anyway, um, that relationship didn't last much longer than a couple of years, I think. But when I came back from Israel, I got in touch. And she said, well, why don't you come and live with me in London until you sort yourself out? And um, so that's what I did. And the craziness continued. But I met this really, really interesting man who was um, Jewish. And he had a a company, a printing company, that worked predominantly with uh, fashion models and photographers. And he was looking for a front man because he was kind of mm, not the kind of person you'd want sitting in your office for many reasons. And he was looking for a front man to. Uh, be clients and get new clients and meet the models and meet the agents and the whole thing to, to get the business. And he loved the fact that I had been this kind of wild guy and lived in Israel. And uh, he said, would you like the job? I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. I mean, I knew nothing about graphic design or fashion. Or, although being a disco dancer, I knew quite a bit about bell buttons and platform shoes. Um So I fell into this job like a duck to water. It was amazing. Um, It was fashion. It was glamour. It was more drugs, more alcohol. It was a really great, great uh, time in London. I bought an apartment. I was driving around in this fancy car. And after about five years, I got the itch. It It was too much like settling down. And so I said to my boss, I want to I want to leave. I need to do something else. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I'd like to go to the States, maybe New York or Los Angeles. And he said, well, why don't you go to New York, open an office for us there, and uh, I'll pay all your expenses and go figure it out, which is what I did. I came to New York. And... Um, for three years I was on this roller coaster. I mean, coming to New York for me was like a kid in a candy shop. There was there were all the clubs. This was nineteen eighty three, so it's nineteen eighty three in New York. The club scene, the disco scene, the drug scene. And for three years I really took that on, one hundred percent. Then one morning after a series of of really crazy, um, you know, what I was doing was pushing the envelope more and more and more. How dangerous could I really make this life of mine be? You know, I had witnessed uh, two murders before 25. In New York? In England. In England. In England. And... um, my mother at one point stabbed my stepfather. I mean, it was so so violence was not new to me and it was uh so there was always I needed the edge. I needed more and more and more and more. So I always not always I started putting myself in really violent situations or crazy situations here in New York. And at the very end of my drinking days, I actually uh was at a a client dinner, fundraising party, and I think it was Regine's. And I was behaving really inappropriately with the uh, the money person. And uh, so I was taken out of the club, put in a limousine, sent home, and I actually woke up in the gutter of uh, where we were living, at, where I was living at the time, on uh, Bleecker and, and Houston Street. And there was this very, very clear moment. It was... I think the second act of divine intervention, if Buddhist believes in God, I mean, the first act of divine intervention was when I put that broken bottle down. This, I thought, would be the second one, was when this voice very clearly said, the gig is up. You've got to stop. Um, I was in therapy, luckily, for about a year at that time, and um, my therapist gave me the number of a friend of hers who was in Alcoholics Anonymous, A.A., and said, here's her number, get to a meeting, and if you don't get to a meeting, our relationship is ended. I'm dropping you as a patient. I'm dropping you as a patient. And I went to a meeting that night, and that was 28 years ago. So i have been clean and sober for 28 years. Five years into my sobriety, I had sold my flat in London. I finished this career in fashion and glamour, moved out to Sag Harbor, rented a house for a year, and during which time I found out I was HIV positive, and uh, so that was really the reason for selling my house. I figured, well, at that time they said, you know, you have 24 months to live. Whoa. Because I wouldn't take um, AZT, I wouldn't do the, the drugs that they were giving everyone at the time. just saw so many friends of mine dying and they were all doing this drug AZT and I said I'm not doing that maybe that was the third divine intervention Mm. and my doctor said well if you don't start this regime you'll be dead in 24 months and I said well you know what I don't think that's true there was a piece of me that said I've come so far I'm not going to get that's not going to take me out and uh, so I sold my apartment I thought well if it is true, I'm going to go live in Sag Harbor. Then I'll travel to L.A. and yada, 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 do some more geographics. And I ended up living in Sag Harbor. It was uh, a beautiful, beautiful time for me for six years. And um, whilst I was living in Sag Harbor, I started training at a psychoanalytic institute, institute. I thought maybe what I need to do is really look at my... The only thing I could really do now five years sober, the only thing that I thought that I would really be interested in was taking care of other people, taking care of other maybe addicts or uh, adults from abusive homes, children. And none of this was really very clear. It was just all in the back of my mind. So basically, I was reliving my own experience. Um... And every week, leaving my supervisor at the institute, I would see this woman come walking towards us, and she was this little lady, no hair, bright blue eyes, and um, I said to my supervisor one day, "Who's that lady that we see every that I see every week when I'm leaving?" And she said, "Well, why do you ask?" I said, "I'm just entranced by her. She's she just there's something about her that I really." I don't know, connect to on some level. And she said, well, why don't you introduce yourself to her? And I said, I feel really awkward. You know, she has cancer and she's kind of old. And my supervisor said, well, why do you think she has cancer? I said, well, she's bald. And she said, that's because she's a Buddhist monk. (laughs) (laughs) So the next week I saw her and I introduced myself to her. I said, hello, my... um, Leah said I should introduce myself to you. My name's Robert, and uh, I don't know why I wanted to talk to you, but. You know, basically, I'm an alcoholic, and um, I come from this really abusive childhood, and um, I was incested, and my mother this, and my her boyfriend's this, and then this violence and that violence, and this drug abuse and that drug abuse, and now I'm clean and sober, and I don't believe in God, and I don't know where to go, and you know, and I'm in this relationship, and I hate it, and my dream has come true, and we have a pool, and dogs, and cars, and this beautiful home, and I just don't, hate, I mean, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And she said, "Robert." do you know what you need to do? And I said, no. And she said, you need to shut up. I was like, excuse me? She said, you need to shut up and listen to these stories that you're living in. That's all in the past. Where are you in this moment? And I said, I'm talking to you right now. she said, exactly. This moment is what's important. Yes, all the rest informed your life. All the rest got you here today talking to me. But you've got to let it go. And I said, I don't know how to do that. I've been in therapy. you know. Then I go on. I've been in therapy for 20 years. Yada, 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 yada. I just said, why don't you try meditating? Come to the Zendo, and I'll show you how to do that.
0: Zendo is the Zen center? Yeah. Yeah. And how did it go when you started meditating?
2: The first time I sat on the cushion... It was, again, it was like my first AA meeting. So I thought, I'm home. Wow, this feels right. But my mind was so crazy. I thought I would crawl out of my skin because she said, sit on that cushion and don't move for 30 minutes. Now, I was an amphetamine addict until mm. I was 22. Sitting still? No. Running around London and nightclubs and running around New York? Sitting still? No. And... um I thought I, would, I thought I would actually die from sitting still and listening to my mind. And over time, my mind started to quiet down. It's still crazy, but it's quieter. And I moved back into the city, into New York. And um, I'd been sitting now for about two years practicing meditation. And I realized that I needed to do something else than just sitting on the cushion, I wanted to be of service, and that's when I started volunteering in hospice. And that's when I met Mimi and Koshin and helped take care of her. Yeah. Full circle. Well done. Full circle. Well done. It was great.
0: This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, designed to be convenient flexible and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. visit betterhelp.com/ happier today to get 10% off your first month. that's betterhelp lp.com/ happier You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5g network. So, so, then you, uh, on Mimi's insistence, you you started uh, the Zen Center for for the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Just give me a brief sense of what it is you do. Mm-hmm. So the Zen Center does three main
1: things. It's all actually basically about living an engaged life, and we do that through our study programs, through our direct care programs, and meditation training.
0: So you teach people how to meditate, you uh, do courses in Zen subjects generally, and then you teach people how to practice hospice care.
1: Yeah, and what we also teach, we teach in two medical centers. So we're in faculty of two medical schools teaching doctors about how to incorporate uh, meditation practice and ethics into how they are with mm-hmm. their patients. And then we also have these national training programs where we're teaching anybody who would like to integrate a meditation practice and how they care in their relationships. Um, That's a nine-month training that we do. And then we do direct care. We have really an incredible team of people who go to people's bedsides and both here in the New York metro area and we've trained people now in thirty two states, so we have a network so some oftentimes people will call us and say, "Do you know someone in Atlanta?" and we do, and we have people available to care for people
0: and you're not only training people in how to be at the bedside but you're you're actually doing this work yourself absolutely so i i'm we've discussed me signing up and, and taking its a, it's a nine month a course in learning mm-hmm. how to be mm-hmm. at the bedside, which is you know counter to all of my instincts as a <laughs> monumentally selfish um, person uh, uh, who happens to be married to a, a monumentally compassionate woman who is at the bedside as a as a um, as a physician, um, and I'm so intrigued by what she does and have yet because I'm squeamish, never gone to work with her. Um, uh, so, but I, I I am seriously considering taking your course in doing this work. So tell me, what what would I be getting myself into?
2: Yourself. Really, you would be getting yourself into... Dan would be getting himself into Dan. You know, we have so many people that take the course. Usually we take about 35 students a year. And probably maybe 70% of those students... With for varying number of reasons, do not go on to continuing hospice or hospital. They say things like, "I never want to set foot in another hospital again until it's my turn um Wow, that's a pretty high attrition rate. Well, they go on to their they go on in their own lives completely transformed how why don't they want to sit in the
0: hospice then? because
2: it's maybe that piece of it doesn't fit into their life. Yeah, or is it just so hard? It could be that it's it's difficult, but none of, no one has ever not completed the course. That's They've it. gone back. I mean, this is the important piece. We're looking at how do you face your fears around death and dying? How do you face the fears of walking into a hospital room and seeing a patient that maybe has just... Uh, is coming through an amputation or is hooked up to a machine in the ICU. How do you sit with that? How do you sit with it? Well, Koshin's going to tell you because he's, like, (laughs) nudging me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) let me, let me, Let me just stop for a second because <laughs> not not i'm not trying to stop the fighting between the two of you that i want to continue but but on but because you guys are smiling and and laughing and but we here we are talking about death you guys are are, are marinating in this subject 24 7 and yet and i don't know if people will get this through watching or listening to you there's a real lightness to both of you That's and you, you have a real sense of humor i, I had lunch with you guys recently and we were laughing the whole time why is that and and do you think there's a causal relationship in that? Yes. Okay. Definitely. Why? Well, to me, the great fear, the greatest fear that
1: I think all of us have are meeting the realities of that, our aging, our
0: illness, and death. And Which so- is
2: why he married an older man, <laughs> so he could face his fears of aging.
0: <laughs> He's giving you a look of, it's my turn to talk now. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> pretty, <there> we go. <laughs> Taking a moment. <laughs> to enjoy mm. silence <laughs> for those listening to this the facial <laughs> interplay here is priceless but anyway carry on <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I think for me actually sitting with people and actually realizing that this is it and realizing that every day we're moving closer to our debt and to to me, is actually the great news. And many people say, oh, you know, I can't believe, you know, it's so depressing that you you guys spend all your time with dying people. Do you spend most of your time with dying people, they say? And I say, well, we spend some of our time with people who know that they're dying, and the rest of the time we're spending time with people who don't know that they're dying. Mm-hmm. The reality of it, to me, makes life so vivid and beautiful. I mean there was a reason why there you know these teachings for 2600 years have been around because it was actually about meeting like sitting with a dead body.
0: That yeah, the, the, so the in the Buddhist hall the they would they would meditate in the charnel grounds. They would sit and watch a decomposing body.
1: Exactly. So
0: the like the reality of it
1: now we say like oh let's you know put on some headphones and you know imagine that. But actually the reality of being with dying people and sick people is so extraordinary because there's something that strips away that the veneer that we put on it in society, as you talked about in the beginning, about how we like put the old people in the nursing home, we put the sick people in the hospital, we put the dying people in the hospice, but learning how to enter those spaces and with an intimacy and to realize I am also that, I'm also you.
2: Person in the bed. Kyoto's raising his hand. Yes. This is one of the secrets of our relationship. When we have conflict, it's rock, paper, scissors. Or raising our hands. Or raising our hands if we want to interrupt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Koshin mentioned something that was really important for once Um, (laughs) the intimacy. Um, The piece that's missing, taking when we're putting our. Aging in nursing homes, where are sick or in, are people who are dying are in intensive care units, hooked up to machines, to ventilators. People who are suffering, you know, they're in the hospitals, and as, and when they're dying, they actually end up in hospice. Fifty years ago, this wasn't the case. People were dying at home. We knew how to take care of people who were dying. We knew how to take care of Grandma. We knew what to do. We knew that. This was the end of her life. In England, we have, here in the States, we have something called a DNR, do not resuscitate. Mm -hmm. In England, they have something called an A-N-D, which is allow a natural death. Mm. We were doing that 50 years ago all across the Western world, allowing for grandma or whomever it was that was dying of cancer or whatever it was to simply be home, and we would take care of them. But because we've changed, and anyways ways in, in terrific areas technology uh, women not having to stay at home and be housewives and you know the little betty at home cooking for husband when he comes home you know, everybody out at work having to earn a living there's no one to take care of grandma if she gets sick so it's like what do we do now and so it's such a it's really such a um, a mark on society how how far we've come and how Far back, we've fallen in a, this area of caregiving, and you know
1: that. But that's what's so amazing about you know this the center and this training also is about that. There, are, the first year we thought like maybe it would be a few people who would be interested in the training. We thought like, it would be really great to have like five people who would want to do this training, and we had like seventy five applications the first year, uh-huh. and you know people from all over the country right come in once a month to train with us and each year it's so invigorating to see that people are turning towards what is scary turning towards our fears and because in some ways you're asking like what are you going to experience well you experience like all the different things that stop you from being in relationship where you turn away where you you know favor your
0: distractions as opposed to pull out your your iPhone exactly yeah? mm-hmm.
1: exactly.
0: But so, so tell me more though about what it does for you guys. I'm asking obviously from a very selfish uh, standpoint. Um, I, I would imagine you, you use the term before stripping away when you when you confront the fact that we are in this these fragile bodies um, and that are made up of you know bones and flesh and skin and and. Uh, You know, thunderously obvious things that we just don't pay attention to. When you confront that in the way that you do, does it sort of uh, sand the edges off of our perennial um, egocentric fixations and um, uh, looping, fizzing stories we're telling ourselves all the time? Is that what it does for you? Robert's raising (laughs) – Chodo's raising his hand. If nobody calls on him, we'll just have to stay there. Okay. Good luck with that, Koshin, go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs>
2: to not look at this this thing called death and dying is a deprivation, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're not living fully. and not fully engaged in our life if we're not looking at the fact that ultimately this life as we know it is going to end. So when we're sitting with patients who are in the hospital with it getting a hip replacement, we're facing sickness, aging. When we're sitting in hospice or in someone's home with a person that is dying, it's right there, right there in front of you. And how can you not look at the fact, the reality that this life of ours is short? This life is not infinite. You know, we're going to, at some point, this is going to be me in that bed, so do I want to spend the li- the rest of my life um, fearing that or embracing the life that I have, and that might mean uh, having a lot of fun. That might mean
1: not missing an opportunity to actually love, and to appreciate. So to me, it's all like what Chad was saying is so important because.
0: I feel that All right, so you're, you're glad he raised his hand oh and, uh, it's yeah. so important uh-huh.
2: but I think that most of what I say is very important taking a breath and enjoying <laughs> we're not like this at the bedside by the way I hope you are like this at the bedside <laughs> if you're at
0: my bedside be like this I think this would be
1: but I think to for me it's really about how do you want to live your life How do you want to live this day? And to me, it brings this kind of awareness, brings the day into kind of technicolor, you can say, right? It's just about wow, I'm going to be leaving this room right now in a certain time, so how do I want to be in here? And how do I want to experiment with being more available? And because I don't – actually, the reality is we assume that our life will go on a long time. But we know, in my experience in working in an emergency room, is that it's a learning that you never know that, that all kinds of things happen.
0: You know, my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, likes to say anything can happen at any time. Mm-hmm. And it does. And it's not an idea. You know, like
1: to me, it was exactly – and when I finally, when I was working in an emergency room, I realized, like, oh, that's actually true. Mm-hmm.
0: So are you guys mm-hmm. no longer afraid of death? Of, what do you mean by Are that? you no longer afraid of death after all of this work that you've done? I, I
1: don't find death scary, but I don't know what it'll be like when I'm dying. When I'm actively dying, I don't know what that'll be like. Maybe I'll be very at peace with it maybe i won't because one of the things that i've also learned is and when you spend time with dying people is that people do it very differently some people are like fighting it to the very end and like that one person that we were with and you know they right before they died they stood up and were like "No," and then they died wow you know and other people use it to really contemplate what their life has been and other people you know just fade away so to me it's about being open to what that moment will be i have no idea but the idea of it is not scary to me i'm actually quite curious and quite um like i am about this moment it doesn't feel different that different to me than this moment with
0: a, you, so being with me is a little bit like dying. Yeah, I've heard that many times, but you're the first person who's saying it in a non-judgmental <laughs> way. Um, <laughs> you just killed this
1: interview. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying. No, I do know yeah, what you're saying. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. But have you have you found that I'm giving you permission to speak, Chodo. With, without Koshin's permission, I am giving you permission. Have you found that your fear of death, the the fear of death that we all, I think, have has it gone down for you doing this
2: work? No. No. Um I do I'm I'm concerned about certain aspects of the dying process. Pain? Not so much the pain. Pain can be managed, but the um the uh the process that the the helplessness that can come with a lingering death, so someone taking care of my bodily functions um, taking me to the bathroom, changing diapers, feeding me—that's not what I want. So I'm afraid of that. Um I'm afraid of anyone just touching me, as uh, for probably historical reasons, that's not what I want. Um, you may not have a choice. That's a much deeper question. I think I will have a choice. Really? Um, How? Oh. Do we want to get into this conversation? Yeah. <laughs> Um, I would much rather go down the avenue of uh, assisted dying than to, first of all, to prolong uh, the inevitable for a number of reasons. First, first of all, the personal reasons of being finding the idea of being in diapers and being taken care of, finding that absolutely abhorrent to me why do you you find that it's something I haven't come to terms with I can do it for I took care of a friend who was for the last five years of his life and the first time he was my sponsor actually so I'd known him for 25 years and we knew pretty much everything about each other and so in the last year of his life when it was you know he was on 24-7 care there was a day when his um, his aide had to I sent her off for lunch you know and um, I changed his diaper. And um, it was really, really difficult for me. The, the smell, the, the function of it, actually doing it. I managed to do it because I loved him so much. And when I had finished, when I cleaned him up, you know, showered him off and the whole thing, he said, you know, darling, thank you for doing that. And I said, it, not a problem. You know, I love you so much. And he said, no, that was really awful for you. And thank you. The thought of having Koshin being responsible for taking care of me in that way, or finding 24-7 care in a, we're in, a, in a system where we don't have the money to do that. You know, so there are a number of reasons why I don't want my death to be prolonged.
0: What do we, what's the Buddhist view on assisted suicide?
2: It's not that. It's not my view. Um, to take a life is not correct view. So this
0: is a heretical position you're taking?
2: Yes, but I'm a, I'm a kind of heretical kind of Buddhist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I get that. Yeah. Um, what do you think of of, uh, of Well, I, this, he knows this. I'll
2: take care of him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what do you think of Chodo's position here?
1: I, hmm.
0: well, first of all, it's not
1: legal in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, and Yet. Right, at this moment. And I think it's also a lot of, I understand the fear of it. I understand the fear of lack of control. And um, it's incredible. I mean, it's like the most vulnerable it will ever be. It's like kind of, we come into the world, you know,
0: as a baby where we need, we require total care. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have one at home and I'm I'm becoming familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And then,
1: actually, to me, the life cycle is then we go into a stage, we go back to that stage where we need total care. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's quite fascinating, you know, and I don't know what it'll be like. I'm sure it'll be like a lot of things. But for him, I think that's, you know, that total care is not something that He's really experienced before, right? And so he didn't really have that. So it's, um, and I had that, and um, so I would imagine it would be scary mm-hmm. and kind of like no,
2: because it's just completely unknown. It's alien, you know. Right. I mean, me coming into the world as a baby was not one that was nurtured and swaddled and you know loved unconditionally. It was this inconvenience for this seventeen-year-old girl, and it's like. What am I supposed to do with this thing mm-hmm.
0: yeah but but you in your work now you are you see people who are in total care in hospice mm-hmm. and yet you you can't you wouldn't be able to relax into it and trust it at, even though it's your environment mm-hmm. pretty much daily now
2: when I'm taking care of someone else, I am so totally one hundred percent with that person, and it's as though well it's not as though my hysterical history or whatever it is. My life experience is, is, although it's informed who I am and how I take care of people, it's outside the door. I'm there 100% with you. And this is what needs to be taken care of step by step by step. And if you vomit and if you you know piss yourself, whatever it is, I'm going to take care of that for you. But for me, I don't need anybody doing that. I don't want that. It's, so, it's such anathema to me for someone to take care of me because I've always taken care of myself until I met this one. Mm-hmm. And even in our relationship, it's very difficult for to accept him taking care of me. You know, if I get sick, if I get bronchitis, which happens once a year, it's like, leave me alone. You know, I'll get through this. Not but, a great patient. I've, no. been, I've gotten through so much worse. I can get through this.
0: So, if or when I sign up for this, am I going to be having to change grown-up diapers and things like that, or what? What is my role? No. no, no. no. Okay. No. So, but it's more about just being there at the bedside, yeah. being willing to chat with people. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, uh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, and I think it's you know, as Toto was talking about that, not everyone will want to continue to do that, but I think what you will learn how to do is actually. As one person said, you've ruined me. Now I'm actually so curious about everything that's kind of going on. And so you're going to be learning how to walk into a room and actually taking in the whole room and taking in, but not the idea of the room, but like that particular room and also your internal state and the state of the room and actually learning how to have a deeper
0: relationship
1: it's kind of actually like an to me it's like engaged
0: practice well that's what i was going to say to me it seems what i why i'm attracted to this is it takes the buddhist practice way out of the theoretical mm-hmm. and puts right. it right into the super practical because i i'm aware as we discussed earlier that the original buddhists were doing things like looking at bodies decomposing mm-hmm. why not because it, they were morbid or uh into uh the macabre but because they were putting them in touch with what is going to happen to all of us mm-hmm. right right we're your a body you're mm-hmm. going to die and it, your body's going to fall apart Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, people think it's, it's not cool to say that in, in most circles in our society right now, but it, it's the truth nonetheless. And so uh, to me, that's what I'm interested in getting in touch with. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can handle it, but I'm interested in trying. Um,
2: One thing you will get in touch with beyond the course, beyond the hospitals, beyond wherever you, you would be placed is your relationship to your own life and to your own family you probably i would say we could place a bet on it right now that at the, if you took the training at the end of that training you would be seeing your wife and your baby in a very very different way mm. because you would be seeing them through different eyes
0: mm, but what what but puts meat on the bone there would how would i be seeing them through different eyes as as impermanent beings yes
2: as yeah. impermanent beings and as um experiencing them moment by moment by moment in times. I mean, we can't live moment by moment by moment by experiencing like consciously, but to walk into the room, to walk into your home after a hard day's work and this beautiful young son comes running towards your daddy, There might be a whole different experience of uh, what that connection is like after you've spent a day in the hospital or a hospice with someone who's suffering you know, even walking into Starbucks, the same Starbucks that you go into every morning and seeing, you know, Gina behind the counter who has a name tag and you've probably never even noticed it and just say, good morning, Gina, could I get a double espresso and see her face? Wow.
1: Because I think in some ways the interpersonal relationship is like what's, you know, fading in this culture. And I think that, how to actually be engaged in a sustained way in relationship and have intimacy with everyone that you're encountering is the potential and the possibility. You know it just they can't underestimate the power of it about actually really learning how to sit with someone who actually knows that this is it, that they actually know that the days of their life are limited. And just sitting and going from room to room with people who know that their days of life are limited. Even if you allow that in for like one
0: moment, in a in nine months, will change you. Chodo has his hand up and he's he's just itching to talk. So yes, sir.
2: The whole thing about how we are, uh, a <laughs> sociable beings these days, you know with. Our, Children with devices, devices, and you know people on their cell phones and their iPads. You know, there's no. There seems to be less and less communication between adults with their children, children to their parents. I think I told you this story, Dan. One of our our, um, students uh, who died recently, two years ago, actually, she was walking down the street one day down Second Avenue, and there was a, a a young woman with her baby in the stroller, and she was, she was clearly distressed. She was crying, and she was messing with the stroller, looking through the blankets, and um, just really agitated. And uh, Judith said to her, Honey, what's wrong? And she said, I can't believe it. I've lost my damn cell phone. <laughs> and Judith said, Honey, I've just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. You have, Look at this beautiful child in the stroller. Where are your priorities? And this woman actually stopped and reached for Judith. And Judith said, I don't need a hug. Your child does. And yeah. that was it. But the, the picture of this woman being so distressed by her cell phone and shuffling the blankets and moving the baby in case the cell phone had gone down the back of the stroller. Jostling the baby. And it's like craziness. <laughs>
0: So it seems to me, and, and I want to uh, set you free soon, but the, it seems to me that there's a, kind of an interesting interplay for, for somebody in your position and in my position as an aspiring uh, – as aspiring to kind of get into your position um, is there's an interesting interplay here between service and self-interest because you're serving other people, but it is also in your interest because it helps your practice. Mm-hmm. And there, it's like inter, in, inextricably intertwined in some way. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, you, you're you're questioning that. Where am I off?
1: Well, I don't know if you're off, but it's not how I understand it. Because I think to me it's... I understand it as the practice. So to me it's about how do do we enter the practice more? And I think that it gets tricky when we think about it as my practice. Because to me about if I can become more awake and then I'm in the river of practice more and more available, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it sense. makes
0: complete sense, but I feel like we're saying the same thing in different ways. Okay. A- although I want to be clear that my capacity for misunderstanding and failure <laughs> to comprehend and, and delusion is vast, but it seems to me that if you, uh, if you if you care about your practice, you want to be more awake or to use your expression to sort of be in the river of the practice in a more fulsome way, and and, and if that means serving other people, then there right. we get to this, this in- right. intersection of... Your self-interest, for whatever, for lack of a better term, and service. Right.
2: I have a different view, of course. That's surprising. Surprisingly, yeah. um, I mean, I think absolutely that, uh, for me anyway, there's a there's an element of self-interest because for so many years the the interest was not on preserving this life of mine; it was about destroying it the drugs and alcohol or whatever else it was. So this, this life of service that I've entered into um, keeps me, I think on many levels, keeps me sober, mm-hmm. keeps me uh, present to the, the fact that, you know, I'm really lucky. I'm re- I, this is such a, an honor, such a privilege to take care of people in this way. And it fills me with such a sense of, on some level, such a sense of pride. You know, God forbid we should have pride, but, you know, we're not Catholics. I'm a Buddhist. (laughs) Um, I think I'm allowed a little bit of that. Um, It is, for me, uh, on some level, self-serving because it keeps me in the world in a safe way.
0: Yeah, maybe we could call it enlightened self-interest. I would hate to use enlightened. Yeah, well, that's a loaded term to be sure. <laughs> so before we close, I would be remiss if I didn't mention you have a book coming out soon, Awake at the Bedside. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. And it's published by Wisdom Publications.
1: Yeah, so it's called Awake at the Bedside, Contemplative Teachings on Palliative End-of-Life Care. And it's a really, it's a book that our students have been asking for. And that's the doctors and nurses and just folks who are taking care of people. So it's a compendium of essays and poems by leading physicians and and Buddhist teachers who are really reflecting on their own personal experience with death and dying and suffering. So it's and they're most of the essays are incredibly impersonal and really sharing both practices and when it goes well and when it doesn't go well. And I feel like it's an incredible companion for people who are themselves facing illness and those of us who take care of those who are facing these challenges.
0: I look forward to reading it and um this is just if assuming I keep my promise and go through with the training this is just the beginning of our relationship and um what I propose is that we reconvene in front of these microphones after I've gone through the training, and we can discuss it again. How does that sound? About at the beginning in the middle of the training. That's it. I'm open to that as well. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks, as always, to the producers of the show, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, and Dan Silver. You can hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris anytime you like. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and leave a review. Thank you for that. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
3: Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today.